we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today I wanted to talk about the ways that immigration law can be used to promote national security. This isn't a new issue. Obviously, dealing with foreigners who are living here who potentially could pose threats is something that has been an issue that every country deals with and that we've dealt with literally from the beginning of the Republic. And several issues have come up in the news recently, and I thought it would be worth talking about them. And what we've written about them has been by someone who's eminently qualified to address these issues is George Fishman, a senior legal fellow here at the center, who is a longtime staffer on Capitol Hill, as well as in Department of Homeland Security, and so is pretty intimately familiar with the legal tools and the limitations and the abilities of these various legal provisions to promote national security. So I want to talk about two aspects of this. The first, and I'll let George go into obviously more detail about it, but the first is this issue that former President Trump brought up about using an 18th century law called the Alien Enemies Act to deal with terrorists, cartel people. And then the other issue is more recent, and this is the issue of what role immigration law can play in dealing with Hamas sympathizers in the United States. So, George, thanks for coming on the show. And let's start with this Alien Enemies Act issue. What is it and why are we talking about something that was passed more than two centuries ago by Congress? Mark, thanks so much for having me. I have to admit that the first time I had heard of the Alien Enemies Act was when candidate Trump's campaign mentioned it as a way, if elected, Donald Trump was going to go after alien cartels, drug cartels, criminal gangs in the United States as, a, as another way, other than Title 42, of deporting uh, dangerous aliens, deporting aliens outside the normal strictures of the immigration law. The reason I had never heard about it is you would not find it in the immigration law. It's in Title 50 of the U.S. Code dealing with war and national defense. Uh, it was enacted in 1798, the oldest surviving immigration enforcement statute in federal law. And it was actually enacted in the midst of an undeclared naval war with France. Yes, France in the throes of the French Revolution. And there were actually fears, widespread fears, that France was additionally going to invade the United States. And uh, this all resulted in the passing of the infamous Alien and Sedition Acts, which primarily dealt with criminalizing the defamation of Congress, 
and the administration deporting dangerous aliens from, from any nation. And those provisions were bitterly opposed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and what were called the Democratic Republicans. They were supported by the Federalists and they were extremely controversial, you know, seemingly in violation of the First Amendment, at least the defamation legislation. And they were allowed to sunset out of federal law rather quickly. But interestingly, the one piece of legislation out of that set that not only is still in federal law, but was supported, endorsed by the very politicians and statesmen who opposed the Alien and Sedition Acts, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, there was widespread bipartisan support for the Alien Enemies Act on the view that, of course, we have to be able to deal with enemy aliens who are nationals of enemy nations when we're at war with those nations. And the Alien Enemies Act, we used it in the War of 1812. We used it in the First World War. We used it in the Second World War. It's been consistently upheld by federal courts up to and including the Supreme Court in a number of decisions and is still good law. George, specifically, what does it allow? Because in your blog post on this, which we're going to have in the show notes, you have kind of the, as they say, the nut graph. In other words, the part that matters the most, that essentially foreigners who have not become naturalized citizens who are members who are citizens or subjects of a state that's at war with us can be arrested and deported. Basically, it's kind of the, what it boils down to, right? Exactly. When there was a declared war between the United States and any foreign nation or government or any invasion or quote-unquote predatory incursion perpetrated or even threatened by any foreign nation or government, the president can have any or all native citizens, subjects of that nation detained and deported at his discretion in the interest of national security and an extraordinarily broad power. And, and the courts have realized all along, this is an extraordinarily broad power, but it's constitutional. Uh, it should be used ju judiciously and responsibly, but that's the responsibility and the power of the president. So during, during World War II, you said this was used, and just a more recent example, that was pretty obvious. We had declared war against Japan, and then uh, the Germans stupidly declared war against us, and so we declared war against them. And so people, in other words, non-citizens who were from those countries could be detained and removed in some war. That was a pretty clear-cut thing. What are the issues, because the reason we're even talking about this is because Trump said, well, we're going to use this against cartel members and drug dealers. How would that work? Aren't there obstacles or problems seeing as the FARC or the Noreste cartel in Mexico, they're not governments really, or are they? And so anyway, what are the issues in dealing with this law the way Donald Trump has suggested he might want to use it? There are indeed very serious roadblocks, as you described. And the essential reason is, first, let's talk about what is an invasion. It's been proposed for a long time now that the out-of-control illegal immigration into the United States is an invasion 
of the United States under the Foreign Invasion Clause of the U.S. Constitution, that the federal government is supposed to defend the states against foreign invasion. Federal courts have never ruled that the illegal alien onslaught is a foreign invasion under the Foreign Invasion Clause, but even assuming assuming that the activities of the Mex- Mexican drug cartels, MS-13, you know, all those gangs and cartels, which are obviously leading to much devastation and death in the United States, constitute an invasion. There's an additional roadblock within Alien Enemies Act in that it has to be by a foreign nation or government. The U.S. Constitution in the invasion clause doesn't say the invasion has to be a foreign by a foreign nation or government. But in this statute, the 1798 statute, it says it has to be by a foreign nation or government, and it has to be against the territory of the United States. So it couldn't be, for instance, an attack against U.S. troops abroad. It has to be something, the territory of the United States, and it has to be by a foreign nation or government. And that obviously puts a lot of obstacles in place in terms of using it against foreign criminal gangs and cartels and things of that nature. The most obvious use, I think, that we could put it would be, I did a piece a while ago about the threat, the espionage, the massive amount of espionage and theft of intellectual property being carried out by foreign students from the People's Republic of China at universities in the United States, hundreds, 300,000 of them essentially uh, at any given moment. And under normal immigration law, you know, let's say the People's Republic of China invades Taiwan and we come to Taiwan's defense. We're at war with the People's Republic of China. There is no realistic way under the normal immigration laws to remove those hundreds of thousands of students from the People's Republic of China physically present in the United States. And I I fretted about that when I wrote my piece about this widespread espionage going on. But the Alien Enemies Act, in fact, could, if it were used, could be the mechanism to detain and or remove large numbers, if not all, of foreign students from the People's Republic of China should we go to war with them? So that that is the most obvious, to me, benefit and use of this act. But there is a sort of blurry gray zone regarding foreign cartels and foreign governments. It's a phrase that's been invented mm-hmm. called mafia states, speaking of countries like Russia and and, and some third world countries in which the organized crime in those countries has become so integrated with the governments of those countries that it's very hard to tell what actions are being carried out by the government and what actions are being carried out by the cartels, especially because some of the government officials are also running the cartels. And so to the extent of dealing with an invasion, a predatory incursion, which pretty much uh, essentially means a raid, if it's carried out by one of these organizations that's tightly linked into a foreign government, then very potentially and arguably the Alien Enemies Act could be used against members of that cartel, of that gang. You know, obviously it would be a 
issue that would have to be litigated in federal court. Obviously, it would be challenged. But I think for that select group of foreign cartels, which have infiltrated and become entwined with foreign governments, be it Russia, be it possibly Mexico, be it any number of other foreign countries, the Alien Enemies Act uh, potentially could be used. It doesn't have to be a declaration of war, declaration of war or invasion or predatory uh, incursion. So as long as we can meet the definition of invasion and the argument can be well established that yes, this is a foreign government. Right. Though of course that has can be used. foreign policy consequences because you know if we were to say okay, Mexico is run by cartels and that's why we're going to use this against cartel members. Mexico, the Mexican government isn't going to take kindly to it. You know, and uh, so that does have other issues. You don't deal with this in your post. I, I want to move on to the Hamas issue, but just one last question: You don't deal with this in the post, but wouldn't the more accurate analogy to what cartels and uh, et cetera are doing would be more like piracy, pirate raids in a sense, or pirate incursions rather than government incursions. You see what I mean? Mark, that is a great question. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson, when he was president, we did go to war against the Barbary pirates in North Africa. Well, that's true. Yeah, but that was a state. Yeah. That was, a, I mean, those were the governments were themselves pirates. The governments of what yeah. are now Tunisia and Algeria were, in fact, pirate states. They were like cartel states like this. You know, there was nothing fuzzy about it. They were, in fact, mafia states where the mafia, the state was a mafia. So it was a little more clear cut there, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. And, and presumably, there weren't too many Tunisians in the United States at that point in time. Well, that's true to lock up. Yes, probably not. So anyway, so the point is there's a lot of obstacles to this. President Trump's campaign brought this up. We'll see if it's anything more than sort of campaign rhetoric. But if it is, it's going to be something that we'll obviously be following. You'll be following and we'll talk about that if and when the day comes. The second issue that you addressed recently that relates to the uses of immigration law for national security it comes in the wake of the Hamas atrocities in southern Israel. And so you had a piece on are there ways of removing people who've given support to Hamas, what's called material support in the law, and I'll let you explain that. But then also another piece that may not be published by the time we this airs, whether we can remove people who are advocating for Hamas, who support the murdering babies and the rest of it, and whether the immigration law can be used to remove those people. So why don't you give us a little bit of the background of how does immigration law intersect with dealing with terrorist supporters in this country? I guess this is very personal for me because in 2005, I worked for Jim Sensenbrenner in the House of Representatives. He was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, as did Andrew Arthur. And we, we assisted, worked with him, helped him to enact the Real ID Act. And most people think of driver's licenses when they think of the Real ID Act. But another provision in Mr. Sensenbrenner's Real ID Act was provisions vastly expanding the grounds of deportability for aliens who provide material support or merely advocate for terrorist activity, for terrorist organizations. We, we took a 
initial step in this direction with Mr. Sensenbrenner in the Patriot Act following 9-11, but it was dramatically strengthened by the Real ID Act. And essentially, in the law as it now exists ever since 2005, if you provide material support, whether it's funding, whether it's expert advice, whether it's equipment, to a terrorist organization, regardless of whether the State Department has designated that organization as a terrorist organization, you are deportable on that basis. There are no exemptions. There are no restrictions. There are no excuses. You're deportable should the government seek to deport you. In addition, if you advocate or espouse terrorist activity and you're an alien, you are also, under the Real ID Act, deportable. This is for any alien, from an illegal alien who's obviously already deportable to a permanent resident. It's extremely a powerful tool. The material support provisions have certainly been used in the past, even as Senator Dianne Feinstein, the recently deceased Democrat senator from California, realized and stated, whenever you give resources, money to a terrorist organization, that money is is fungible. You say, you know, you know, I'll give you this terrorist organization, I'll give you this money for X. Well, they can use that money for whatever they want to, and they can use it to, to pay for something so they can use their other resources to pay for bullets and to pay for bombs. So as Diane Feinstein realized and advocated, any material support to a terrorist organization furthers the terrorist activity of that organization. Unfortunately, a year or so ago, the Biden administration dramatically handicapped or handcuffed its ability to use the material support statute to deport uh, aliens who provide material support to terrorist organizations by exempting so-called insignificant material support. Before we continue on that, it seems to me material support is part of the issue, the adjective there. What does what does material support mean? In other words, anything other than just chanting, you know, go Hamas? In other words, is money. Everybody gets that. But is that all it means? What does the material part of material support mean? It's a very uh, broad definition. If, if you do business, if you sell a product to a terrorist organization or members of that organization, knowing that you're selling oh, to a terrorist organization, that is material support. Material support, there's also a criminal material support statute, and Chief Justice Roberts indicated a number of years ago in a Supreme Court decision that if you give expert advice on some matter to a terrorist organization, that is material support. Interesting. You know, mere advocacy of terrorism, that is not material support, but if you give them advice, instructions on how to do X, Y, or Z, right. even if it's a supposedly peaceful thing that you want them to do, that is material support that can send anyone, including a U.S. citizen, to jail. So it's a very broad definition. And the Biden administration has decided as to a more limited extent, the Obama administration did years ago, that if you're giving uh, support to Hamas, that is a routine commercial transaction, <laughs> a traditional cultural activity, that's exempted. No problem with that whatsoever. It's not our business. 
So basically, the administration has gutted this important provision. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has done that. And, you know, and the next administration could undo the damage. But until that damage is undone, it dramatically reduces the effectiveness of the uh, material support statute. Unbelievable. The advocacy statute has, I don't think, has really ever been used. Obviously, there's, there would be a big issue about constitutionality, you know, the First Amendment and the right to free speech. But in the piece you referenced that uh, should be coming out soon, I took a look at the First Amendment law and case law, and essentially, it's not really clear at all that aliens, especially illegal aliens, but aliens of any sort, have the same First Amendment rights as U.S. citizens do. And given the case law that has come down over the years, it's very, very likely that you could constitutionally deport an alien for the type of advocacy of murder, of torture, of terrorism that a U.S. citizen could get away with. One of the primary reasons for that is for over 100 years, the Supreme Court has been clear, deportation is not punishment. Right. You can deport someone for something that you could not put them in jail for. It's not punishment. It's, it's enforcing the civil immigration laws of this country. And therefore, there was a lot, uh, a lot more leeway. So obviously, this is also something that would be litigated. But, you know, those college students around the country, some U.S. citizens, some uh, aliens who were celebrating, who are celebrating the murder and torture and mass rape by Hamas in southern Israel of over a thousand Israeli civilians, celebrating it as killing settlers and destroying the state of Israel, and settlers have no right to live, and Israel has no right to exist. Those college students uh, celebrating that, if they're alien, I would very much urge the Biden administration to seek their deportation under this provision. And sure, they're constitutional issues, but it's on, on strong enough constitutional standing, the administration should pursue those deportations and take on the litigation and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But as Senator Cotton, in urging the administration to do just this, has indicated, we certainly, you know, under the Constitution, have to suffer American citizens advocating mass murder and even genocide, because as, uh, you know, as I point out in my piece, presumably Hamas would have killed every Jew in Israel if it had the opportunity. So it really is morphing, you know, from mass murder to genocide. If a U.S. citizen wants to advocate this, advocate that, that's one thing. We don't have to suffer aliens who are guests in our country doing the same thing. On this issue of, you know, whether the First Amendment is relevant here, do the courts draw a distinction between people with green cards, lawful permanent residents who are kind of in the law, they're sort of associate members of the American people. They're still aliens, but they're potentially on track to not be, to become citizens. A distinction between them and, say, foreign students who are here on F-1 visas, foreign student visas, do 
foreign students have more limited First Amendment rights since they're even more guest-like than other aliens. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, Mark, that, that's an excellent question. And I think the answer is, is yes, or very probably yes. And the weakest case the government could bring, deportation case, would be to go after a permanent resident uh, rather than a foreign student, as you indicate. And the reason for that is the federal government or Congress has passed legislation over the years severely restricting the right of non-permanent residents of aliens who are not lawful permanent residents to be involved in our political process. Right. Not talking about voting, but talking about contributing money and advocating for candidates and things of that nature. And those laws have been found constitutional by the Supreme Court, barring aliens who are not permanent residents from doing those things, from contributing to political campaigns. Right. Things of that nature. At the same time, as we all know, the Supreme Court, in decisions like Citizens United, have dramatically liberalized the election laws and other instances in, in the interests of free speech. And in fact, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, before he was on the Supreme Court, in a case which the, the Supreme Court eventually affirmed, said in his majority decision, that these restrictions, election law restrictions on aliens, if we were to apply those to permanent residents, that, that raises a whole other set of issues, and maybe that would not be constitutional. So if, so if Brett Kavanaugh, now on the Supreme Court, Republican uh, nominee, and now on the Supreme Court, is saying permanent residents likely have many more First Amendment rights than do other aliens, discretion would probably be not to bring these cases against permanent residents. Right. And the, but the corollary of that is that the Supreme Court does acknowledge that like foreign students or other visitors have less protection. So you, they, if, I mean, this administration is never going to do it, but if in a future administration, they try to deport aliens advocating for Hamas, then the sensible thing to do would be to start with foreign students because that's the easiest case or the, the, the most likely case they'd probably be able to win. Just one last question on this because we're, we're running up against time. And that is an issue that came up after 9-11 is the advocating for anti-constitutional basically positions. But I think from the exclusion end, in other words, from people who aren't here, want to come here. What grounds can we reject your desire to come here? And I remember that, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but former Congressman Barney Frank had ushered a measure through Congress that said if a foreigner said things, advocated positions that would be permitted for a U.S. citizen to advocate, that we can't turn them down for a visa. They called it ideological exclusion. And that seems, frankly, it seems kind of crazy to me, but isn't that potentially a roadblock to deporting, you know, Hamas mouthpieces in the United States? A lot of the Cold War McCarthy era restrictions right. on, you know, on aliens for their views, whether they're Communist Party members or things of that nature, 
were dismantled uh, in the 1990 Immigration Act, but some, some of them still exist. I think the short answer is that aliens outside the United States have no constitutional rights to enter the United States. Right. And so it's w- whatever rights Congress provides, those are their rights. Now, I- interestingly, there have been cases, though, where U.S. citizens have sued the government for excluding an alien on the argument that it's their First Amendment right, the U.S. citizens' First Amendment right to talk to, to listen to, to hear the views of these aliens. And the Supreme Court has essentially said, yes, in some instances, it's the U.S. citizen wanting to hear the alien who has the First Amendment right. But essentially, the Supreme Court laid out a test in which it, even though U.S. citizens technically have this constitutional right, it's extremely easy for the government to meet its burden. That if, if it makes its decision to deny entrance to an alien based on a statutory provision, it was doing it in good faith based on a statutory provision. Essentially, the Supreme Court has said courts cannot look behind that decision. Right. That's all the government has to do to deny entrance to an alien, even if a U.S. citizen has a First Amendment right in in hearing that alien. So technically, there is a little fuzzy area there, but uh, the, the real difficulty is once an alien enters the United States and deporting them as opposed to keeping them out in the first place. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so and the, and kind of to wrap it all up, we've been talking about tools that are in the immigration law to promote national security. And the bottom line is that this administration, unfortunately, is not going to be availing itself of these the way it could, and in fact, has gutted some of them in practice. So it won't be until we see a new administration, whoever happens to be in that, that there's a possibility that any of these powerful provisions in the law could be used against aliens who threaten the United States. I think, unfortunately, that is the case with the proviso that if there's a Hamas or Hamas-inspired terrorist attack in the United States, possibly even the Biden administration would be forced to uh, use some of, this, some of these very valuable tools. Well, let's hope we don't find out. But if that lamentable development comes to pass, we will have you back and talk about it. Thank you, George Fishman senior legal fellow here at the center who has been talking to us about elements in the immigration laws that the administration can use to promote national security. We'll have links to the pieces that he's written over the past few weeks on this in the show notes. And we will have you back in the future, George. Thanks so much, Mark. And finally, I wanted to talk about a a different security-related issue regarding immigration. It's not the kinds of things that George and I were talking about, but there was a recent story about Nicaragua using migration as a kind of weapon against the United States because Nicaragua is an oppressive government and they have there's various sanctions against them. And so what Nicaragua seems to be doing is encouraging more and more people from Haiti to come there and make their way to the U.S. border and trying to leverage that 
as a way of getting us to loosen sanctions on them if they agree to crack down on this migration flow. The Venezuelan authoritarian government actually succeeded in this regard. They agreed to take back some of the Venezuelans that have been coming here illegally in exchange for our loosening sanctions. This is a tactic that's been used, a kind of asymmetrical tactic, as they usually call it, used by weaker countries against stronger countries. There's a whole book on this called Weapons of Mass Migration. And it's not just, I mean, it warrants a whole podcast on its own. I'm not going to go on and on about it. But it's using migration not just as a weapon against the people who are leaving. For instance, the Azeri Turks ethnically cleansed Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh. That was an attack, but it wasn't using migration as an attack. Something similar happened in Burma, where they drove out, the Burmese government drove out many of the Rohingya minority into the next door country, Bangladesh. But Burma didn't intend that as a way of pressuring Bangladesh. In other words, they weren't using it as a weapon against another country. Whereas what Nicaragua is doing, what Cuba has done on several instances, the Mario boat lift back in 1980 being the most notable, is using the migration itself as a weapon against, in this case, the United States, but Turkey has used migration as a weapon against Europe. It's not an uncommon development. The Nicaragua example is what's new, and it just called to mind this issue of weapons of mass migration. And countries, developed countries especially, are the ones vulnerable to this sort of weaponization of migration. And part of the reason is that our asylum rules and our laws against illegal immigration are not constructed in such a way as to respond and deter these kinds of weaponizations of migration against us. And it's an additional reason, a very important additional reason, for getting our own house in order at the border, physically, but also legally, in limiting immigration, in facilitating and accelerating deportation of illegals, that sort of thing, so that these kind of weaponized migration flows don't have the same effect, don't have the same punch, as it were. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. Uh, You can leave us a review or rating if your podcast platform permits that. In any case, feel free to just email us at center at cis.org. If you have any compliments, complaints, suggestions for future shows. And until next week, this is Mark Krikorian signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy. 